This program is brought to you by Emory University. Well, good afternoon and uh, welcome to this, the uh, opening session of the Emory Center for Mind, Brain, and Culture's conference on the evolution of brain, mind, and culture. I'm going to be serving as the chair of this first session. Now, the two principal aims of the Center for Mind, Brain, and Culture are first, to support multidisciplinary research and teaching on those topics and their connections with one another. And second, to showcase the outstanding work that takes place at Emory University in these areas. Now, it's in pursuit of both of these goals that we've organized this conference. Uh, to stay abreast of all of the events and programs that the CMBC sponsors, many of which, like this conference, are free and open to the public, go to the CMBC's website. Uh, simple enough, cmbc.emory.edu, okay? Uh, and either uh, register as an affiliate with us or uh, simply join the CMBC's listserv. Um, now, I should add that it's our intention uh, to have videos of this entire conference available for viewing on our website within the next few months. Now, I want to take a moment to note that this conference is occurring in coordination with the premiere of a new play entitled Hominid uh, by Ken Weitzman at Theatre Emory, uh, co-produced with Out of Hand Theatre here in Atlanta. Uh, Hominid is based on Franz Duvall's book, Chimpanzee Politics. Uh, the show's run begins tonight at 7 o'clock at the Mary Gray Monroe Theater uh, in the Dobbs University Center. And um, I, what I have written here that I was going to read to you was, we strongly urge you to attend a performance. The fact of the matter is, a number of us went to the last dress rehearsal last evening, and I must say it was an extraordinary production. I heartily encourage you all to attend. It's, it's, it's amazing theater, um, both funny and tragic and... Uh, always engaging. Um, okay, back to my, my script, so. <laughs> um, now both this conference and the production of Hominid are also uh, further coordinated with a library exhibition entitled Origin, which is at the Schotten Gallery at the Robert W. Woodruff Library. I th in that direction, okay. Uh, among the items on display there is the library's first edition of Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species. Now here at the outset, I also want to express our profound gratitude to the Emory University Subvention Fund and the Office of Provost Earl Lewis for a major grant in support of this conference. We also want to gratefully acknowledge additional funding from the Emory Cognition Project and from the Departments of Anthropology and Psychology here at Emory as well. I also want to just take a second and add a personal word of thanks uh, first of all, to Laura Namey, uh, the CMB's associate director, and uh, to Jared Rothstein, the fellow over there who's got those programs for us, uh, um, because their thoughtful and conscientious work over the past months are really what have made this conference possible. Okay, this conference is a result of the confluence, on the one hand, of the birth and the development of the Center for Mind, Brain, and Culture here at Emory over the past two years. And on the other hand, of the Darwin anniversaries of the year 2009. I mean, not to put too fine an edge on it, when Laura and I were appointed to our jobs, uh, I think it took us about three seconds 
to figure out that a really great thing to do to both launch the center and to celebrate the Darwin anniversaries would be to have a conference just like this in the year 2009. Um, well, why? Of course, because we're talking about the bicentennial of Charles Darwin's birth on February 12th in 1809, and the sesquicentennial of the publication in 1859 of his landmark work on the origin of species by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life. That's the actual full title. <laughs> in fact, On the Origin of Species first appeared on November 24th, 1859, so the date of that anniversary is actually less than two weeks away. Now we've assembled for this conference leading thinkers on the evolution of Homo sapiens, and in particular on the evolution of brain, mind, and culture. Our speakers hail from a variety of disciplines, including evolutionary biology, neuroscience, archaeology, primatology, biological, psychological, and cultural anthropology, and comparative and evolutionary psychology. By examining current views of the roles in the evolution of our species, of changes in brain, mind, and culture, this conference honors Darwin's life and work by exploring long-standing interests that Darwin himself had in human evolution and psychology. Best illustrated, of course, by publication of The Descent of Man and Selection in Relation to Sex in 1871, and uh, in the subsequent year, the publication of The Expression of Emotions in Man and Animals. Well, this conference also celebrates the Darwinian legacy by examining the applicability of Darwin's conceptual and theoretical apparatus for explaining long-term changes in large-scale distributed systems other than biological lineages and populations. Since the publication of Samuel Butler's Darwin Among the Machines in 1863, but four years after the appearance of Darwin's On the Origin of Species, Writers and thinkers have employed Darwinian-inspired tools to explain not just the evolution of technology, but the evolution of language, the evolution of religion, the evolution of political arrangements, and, as is true of our conference, the evolution of cultures more generally. There are then multiple senses in which it's true that thanks to Charles Darwin, we will, over the next day and a half, learn more about ourselves and about our species' natural history. Okay, toward those ends, it's now my privilege to introduce our keynote speaker, Matt Ridley. After earning his DPhil in zoology from the University of Oxford, Matt Ridley worked at The Economist for 10 years as a science and technology correspondent and editor, where, among other things, he won the Glaxo Science Writers Award for the best science article of 1983. In addition to his work for the, at The Economist, Dr. Ridley has written for a variety of prominent newspapers, magazines, and periodicals, including the Daily Telegraph, the Times of London, the Times Literary Supplement, the Literary Review, Natural History, Time, Newsweek, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Atlantic Monthly, and actually many, many more. Now, Matt Ridley is probably best known, though, as the author or editor of nearly a dozen books, which collectively have been translated into 25 languages and have sold more than a half a million copies. Prominent among these works 
are his Red Queen, Sex and the Evolution of Human Nature in 1993, Origins of Virtue, Human Instincts and the Evolution of Cooperation in 1996, Genome, the Autobiography of a Species in 23 Chapters in 1999, Nature via Nurture, Genes, Experience, and What Makes Us Human in 2003, and his biography, Francis Crick, Discoverer of the Genetic Code, which came out in 2006. Now, Matt Ridley's books have been shortlisted six times for major prizes for science and nonfiction, and he has been uh, the recipient of the National Academy's Book Award in 2004 and the Davis Prize for the History of Science from the History of Science Society in 2007. In addition to his work as a journalist and as, as a scholar, Dr. Ridley also serves as the chairman of the International Center for Life, Newcastle-upon-Tyne Science Park and Visitor Center dedicated to the life sciences. Matt Ridley has been awarded three honorary doctorates, including one from Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory, where he was served as a visiting professor. We're fortunate to have Matt Ridley with us today. He is, quite simply, one of the world's most prominent writers on the topic of human evolution and on evolutionary thought more generally. The title of his talk today is Darwin in Genes and Culture. Join me, please, in welcoming Matt Ridley. Thank you, Bob, indeed, for that very kind and generous introduction. Um, I think because I'm at Emory, I should apologize for not being Mark Ridley, um, who was here for many years and who was a great friend and colleague of mine, but uh, and we're often mistaken for each other. Um, uh, he's a very distinguished evolutionary biologist um, proper. Um, but uh, 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 anyway, now you, you can see the definite proof, those of you who know him, that we are actually two different species. Um, <laughs> Uh, and uh, the other thing I should say is that it's a tremendous honor to be here at this wonderful event and to be speaking in, uh, in front of an audience that includes not only uh, a lot of uh, distinguished people generally, but also many of the other speakers who are people who I, uh, uh, whose brains I have picked and ideas I have stolen over the years. So uh, um, uh, this is some, something, there's a certain amount of trepidation in, in what I'm going to say. Um, we're here, as Bob said, because Darwin is 200 years old today, and in more particularly, his book is 150 years old this month. Um, and what I want to try and do is take Darwin out of his comfort zone, um, if you like, uh, in terms of evolution, and, and put him into both genetics, where he um, didn't really uh, have much to say, and also um, into culture. Um, now, I wonder if I should just get rid of that thing, whatever it is. Click what? If I just click this, will it go? There you go. Okay. So what I want to do is put Darwin in genes. Um, don't worry, the jokes get no worse than that. And in culture. Because actually, this is the anniversary uh, of another rather interesting book. Um, it's actually a very boring book. Um, it's called Elementa de Exacta Erblichkeit Lyra, and it's by a Danish botanist called Wilhelm Johansen. And this was the book published in 1909, exactly 100 years ago, 
which coined the word gene. There it is, the word gene appearing on the first page, um, uh, exactly 100 years ago in February 1909, um, which is an anniversary that nobody's celebrating particularly, but I think it's quite an interesting little uh, aspect. And, of course, genes were the one thing that Darwin didn't get right. Um, he didn't understand heredity, and his ideas on the subject were, frankly, rather confused, although he tried quite hard to get them sorted out. Um, and yet, I feel almost cross with him, because um, the answer actually was staring him in the face. And I mean that quite literally, because he had blue eyes. And if you've got blue eyes, I mean, I have been trying to find out, by the way, whether, whether any of his children had brown eyes or, or one of his parents had brown eyes. Um, but even if they didn't, he surely must have known from looking at other uh, people uh, in his circle of friends that, that people who have blue, eye, blue eyes can have brown-eyed children and vice versa. So the, 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 the element of heredity that gives you your eye color is not contaminated by the body that it's in. Um, I mean, I have blue-eyed children and uh, one blue-eyed child and a blue-eyed father, and yet so the blue-eyed gene is in me, but it's not been... No, it's not been tainted by my brown eyes. So blending inheritance has to be wrong. It's, it's, the Mendelian lesson is right there staring you in the face. And the reason I bang on about his blue eyes is because there's actually a way of telling quite a nice story now about the genetics of blue eyes, and it leads into culture as well. Because at the beginning of last year, um, a uh, Danish scientist um, by the name of Hans Eiberg um, rather appropriately, uh, has managed to pin down the main mutation that causes blue eyes. It's on uh, chromosome 15. By the way, this is my genome, as you can probably tell. Um, uh, um, I have at least got a Y chromosome, which is a relief. Um, it, it's on chromosome 15, and it's a gene called OCA2 um, that is associated with much the commonest mutation that causes blue eyes in Europeans. Um, but it, the story is a little more interesting than that. There's Hans Eiberg, the, the, the man who, who did this work. Um, because there's OCA2 on chromosome 15. That's the gene up there. And it turns out the key mutation, which everybody had been looking for inside OCA2, is not in OCA2. It's in the next-door gene called HERC2. And yet, it, the reason it causes blue eyes is because it affects the expression of OCA2. It lies in an intron in HERC2, that's to say in a gap in, in, the, in the sequence of the HERC2 gene. And there it is there, it's the 26,039,213th letter on, the, on chromosome 15, which is normally, um, is it normally an A? Yes, it's normally an A in brown people and it's a G in blue-eyed blue people. And uh, that change causes a sufficient change in that sequence to, to change a control region, because that is the control region for uh, OCA2. So it's not that the gene itself is being changed, but one of the control regions for the gene. Of course, this is one of the big themes of modern genomics, is the discovery that a lot of evolution is happening by the changes in control regions in genes rather than in genes themselves. And there, for example, is um, what a blue-eyed person looks like genomically uh, compared with a brown-eyed person, which means that if you measure just these six um, uh, DNA letters, a brown-eyed person uh, is more like 
a chimpanzee, a rhesus monkey, a horse, a cow, a cat, a dog, a rat, and a mouse than it is like a blue-eyed person for that little segment, I should hasten to add. But that's not the most interesting thing about this story because the question then arises, well, why did the blue-eyed mutation spread in northern Europe in uh, the, uh, whenever it did? Um, and I think Darwin's answer would have been sexual selection. I say this because Darwin's answer for all human racial differences, as he put forward in, in um, uh, uh, The uh, uh, Descent of Man, his answer to that was that they were caused by sexual selection. He couldn't understand how racial differences and ethnic differences were, uh, in, affected the survival of the organism, so he suggested that they might uh, affect the mating success of the organism. In other words, there were sexual preferences going on which were breeding um, different races into different directions. That was why he came up with the idea of sexual selection in the same book as, an, as a book about the descent of man. Um, and he invented this whole notion of sexual selection, which is, of course, a, a, a just as good an insight as natural selection. The idea that, as well as survival of the fittest, which is natural selection, there is also reproduction of the sexiest. And he used this to um, explain the tale of the peacock, famously. Um, and indeed, he's absolutely right, we now know, about peacocks. And it is true that the reason they have these enormous tails um, is because females have been selecting males with large and brightly colored tails for a long time. And there's some data to show that brighter-tailed peacocks um, get more copulations than uh, duller-tailed peacocks. This is the work of Adeline Loyot in France. So Darwin's answer to why are the blue eyes would probably have been um, because blue-eyed people are sexier. Um, but actually, um, well, there's some data. Um, well, I'm sorry, that's just the peacock graph again. I, I, I just thought I'd throw that in. Um, actually, I think... It's now clear from Hans Eiberg's work that Darwin was wrong about this because it's now, there's now another explanation for how the blue-eyed gene came along that is much more interesting in some ways and much more cultural. If that's roughly a map of, of uh, where blue eyes occur in Europe, I don't think it's a terribly accurate map. Uh, it's from the 1930s. But anyway, the general idea is right that the blue-eyed mutation must have arisen somewhere around the Baltic Sea. Um, <coughs> Eiberg has put a date on it from looking at the sequences uh, around that part of the genome, and it looks like it arose about 6,000 years ago, which is remarkably recent. Um, and what was happening around the Baltic Sea around 6,000 years ago, well, that was when agriculture reached that area. And the argument, therefore, stares us in the face that if people had started farming this far north for the first time, and this is, by the way, one of the few places on the globe where you can farm grain this far north today, if people were becoming uh, dependent on a, grain, on a diet of grain instead of things like fish and berries and things, then they would have run into a serious vitamin D deficiency in those long, dark winters around the Baltic Sea. And there would have been enormous selective pressure to have paler skins because um, uh, one of the effects of sunlight on the skin is that it causes the synthesis of vitamin D. So what looks like it's happening here is good old-fashioned natural selection for a... Um, pale skin and therefore for blue eyes. And so here's the argument, as it were. People start farming 
cereals near the Baltic. The monotonous diet uh, gives them too little vitamin D. Um, so the people who have the paler skins tend to be healthier, which means either that they survive better or, they get, or they, uh, um, they're sexier, um, which selects for any low melanin genotype that there is, um, such as having uh, low tyrosine levels in your cells. Uh, tyrosine is transported within the cell by the P protein, which is manufactured by the gene OCA2, one of whose control sequences is an intron in, H, in HERC2, uh, which control sequence is less sensitive when it has a G instead of an A at that particular locus, a side effect of which is blue eyes. <laughs> well, it's a nice just-so story, but what really intrigues me about this story is that it's an example of gene culture coevolution. That is to say, it's not that the gene changed and the culture followed suit, it's the other way around. The culture changed and that selected for a genetic change. Now, there are other examples of the same phenomenon, particularly milk drinking. The ability to digest lactose is found only in the descendants of people who um, were, uh, took up dairying um, uh, in parts of Africa or parts of uh, Europe and, and Western Asia, for example. But I think this is a terribly important point because we tend to assume that we have to look for a genetic switch that throws something to make human beings special, that gives us big brains or language or whatever. But often I think it's going to be the cultural horse that comes before the genetic cart in this human story. And then when we do find genetic changes, like genes for language, etc., they're probably responding to, in this sort of way, they're responding to um, uh, uh, cultural changes uh, in our behavior. I now want to switch gears completely and talk purely about cultural evolution. And what I mean by that um, is uh, the, 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 the change over thousands of years in the way human society works without any genetic changes. Because we know, for example, that most of the technology available to us in this room um, was acquired uh, without uh, any, even gene culture changes for, for that. We haven't, as it were, got a, a gene for being able to use one of these. So how did we go from making these to making these? <laughs> these are two objects that sit on my desk at home. It's a real photograph. It's not fake. They are exactly the same size and shape. Um, uh, and what's remarkable about them is not their similarity. That's boring. Of course they're the same size and shape. They're both designed for the human hand. What's remarkable about them is two things that are different about them. The one on the left is half a million years old. The one on the right is five years old. The half million year old hand axe is, was made by, well, was made to a design that continued to be used for about a million years. Now there are changes in the design of Australian hand axes over that time, but they're not very much. There's no continual innovation, there's no progress, there's very little geographic, uh, consistent geographic variation. Um, so and, uh, th these hand axes were made for 10,000 centuries to roughly this design. So the idea that once you get technology, you also get uh, innovation just ain't true. It's possible to produce um, uh, technologies with very, very little innovation. And so the point uh, here is that... Um, well, the other difference that intrigues me is that the one on the left was made by one person 
And we know this because if you go to some of the sites where you find Australian hand axes, you can sometimes find the site of manufacture. You can find the flakes that were chipped off a block to make this um, lying in a heap. And the, in one case, the, 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 the chips are lying in a heap either side of a shadow of the legs of the man who is sitting there making them. This is a box grove in Surrey. And if you put them back together, you can actually make a boulder with a ghostly shape inside the shape of the hand axe that came from it. So one person sat down and napped one of these. The object on the right was not made by one person. It was not made by 10 people. It was not made by 1,000 people. It was made by a million people. And what I mean by that, it's not just the people in the computer mouse company who made it. It's the uh, people who drilled the oil well from which the oil came for making the plastic. It's the people who brewed the coffee that they drank at, at, at their work, etc., etc. The point is that human intelligence went from being individual to being collective. And that, I think, is the crucial thing that we have to try and understand about the human breakout uh, from being just another species to being this <coughs> extraordinarily ecologically dominant species. I'm borrowing here fairly directly from an idea um, uh, that was put into a beautiful essay by uh, uh, a, an economist called Leonard Reed in 1958. The, the essay is called I Pencil, and it's written by a pencil. And the pencil is trying to understand how it came to be. And it tries to understand where its ingredients came from and who put them together and how they got put together. Um, and he ends up concluding that he's been made by millions of people and that there isn't a single person in all these millions, including the president of the pencil company, who contributes more than a tiny infinitesimal bit of know-how. And that there's a fact still more astounding, the absence of a mastermind of anyone dictating or forcibly directing these countless actions which bring me into being. It's the same idea that Friedrich Hayek um, made in 1945, where he pointed out, and this is his argument against central planning, uh, that knowledge never exists in concentrated or, or integrated form, but solely as the dispersed bits of incomplete and frequently contradictory knowledge which all the separate individuals possess. So what I'm trying to understand here is when, where, why, and how did human intelligence go from being individual to collective? Well, here's a graph of human brain size over the last two and a half million years. Um, and my argument is going to be that most of the things that people say that were special about human beings, that in enabled us to take off in this way, actually occur much too early in the story to be the explanation for our success, as, as our ecological success in this way. For example, standing up on two feet so that you've got free hands, well, you know, um, that was three million years ago, probably rather a lot more. Um, the first stone tools, uh, Homo habilis maybe, two and a half million years, that sort of thing. Stone tools were invented and nothing happened. We went on being just an ordinary species sitting on the African savanna at the mercy of the elements, at the mercy of our, of our competitors and predators. Even something like the invention of fire, which nobody knows when it was invented. There's, <laughs> there's some doubt as to whether it's one and a half million years ago or half a million years ago or anywhere in between. And um, Richard Wrangham has made a very persuasive argument that it did unleash the capacity to build bigger brains because it gave us much higher calorie output from our food um, and I think that there's something in that, but I don't believe uh, that it, it simply happened too 
early in the story to explain this takeoff, which only happens, remember, in the last few hundred thousand years. Language, too. We used to think language was very recent, possibly as little as 200,000 years ago. Um, but now there's increasing evidence that it probably is older than that. For example, the FOXP2 gene, which is a gene that is mutated in human beings uh, and that is uh, quite distinctly from the way it's mutated in other um, organisms, uh, and which is necessary for the production of speech and language, that gene turns out to be identical in Neanderthals as it is in human beings. Um, that's a recent uh, announcement from Svante Pabo's group. And now the, the common ancestor of Neanderthals and, and modern human beings lived um, probably uh, 400, 500,000 years ago. So it looks as if the apparatus for language, at least, I'm not saying that FOXP2 is the only gene that causes language, but I'm saying it's one of the genes that looks like it's been under gene culture coevolutionary selection pressure um, at some point. Again, it's too early in the story, probably, perhaps not. I'm going to argue that what happened in the last couple of hundred thousand years that caused us to do ecological takeoff, I'm not saying this is the explanation of all the wonderful uh, aspects of human nature, is the invention of exchange. That there was something really quite critical about our uh, ability to start exchanging things with each other. Because whatever explanation you come up with for why human beings are so um, dominant on the planet uh, has to deal with why not the Neanderthals. Um, they had brains just as big as us. They were using tools, they were cooking, they were burying their dead, and as I say, they were probably fairly good at language. Um, and yet they remained trapped within their niche. They only, they had, um, uh, they, they, they showed no evidence of being able to um, culturally evolve their way out of a particular niche. I want to take a sideways glance at this story first um, and to talk about sex. Um, sex is a crucial ingredient for biological evolution, at least for speeding up biological evolution, because without it you can't bring together mutations that happen in different lineages. The whole point of sex is to swap genes so that you can bring together um, innovations made in one lineage with innovations made in another and combine them in the same organism. I say that's the whole point of sex. That may not be the whole point of sex, but it's one of the effects of sex. <laughs> and, the have, and, and when this theory, uh, when the arguments in the 1990s were going on about the origin and evolution of sex, there was um, considerable embarrassment about some species, some families of species, that seemed to be able to get along fine and do plenty of evolving without having sex. And the classic example is the deloid rotifers, microscopic animals that uh, have not had any males in their species for 80 million years. And um, they seem to be getting along just fine, which is obviously a worrying development, and we need to stamp it out. Um, well, it turns out that uh, in a paper published last year um, by uh, Matt Meselson's group that um, they, they have been having sex, but of a, not of the kind that we know. In other words, they've been getting genes out of their food to swap with themselves. They've been doing horizontal gene transfer, gene transfer with other species. They've been having, as it were, much more sex, much more promiscuous sex than the rest of us. Um, they're doing something, in other words, that bacteria do, because bacteria do a lot of horizontal gene transfer, it's now known. So they are not an exception that proves the rule. But they do show that 
if that evolution depends upon having genetic exchange. And my argument is going to be that cultural evolution depends upon having physical exchange of objects. So here's what happens if, if this is a species moving, time moving from left to right, um, and um, these are different lineages. Um, uh, if you invent uh, three different things, they can't come together in an asexual species or in a culture that is not uh, exchanging. Um, whereas if the, if the species is sexual or the culture is exchanging, they can come together. And so, for example, to make a eukaryotic plant cell, you need a nucleus, a chloroplast, and a mitochondria, three different inventions to come together in the same lineage. If you invent a mammal, you need fur, lactation, and the placenta are all to be um, brought together by sex. And likewise, the wheel, the rubber, and steel are all necessary for a bicycle. If you invented them in separate places and never brought them together, you wouldn't be able to build a bicycle. Uh, the phone, the computer, and the search engine is necessary for the internet. So I'm interested then in when we began to exchange things and when we started to trade. But first, I just want to clarify one point. And this is a point I have a lot of trouble getting across to people and um, be interested to know whether, whether people find it as, as clear as I think I do. And that is that exchange and reciprocity are not the same thing at all. Because there's a lot of reciprocity going on in the animal kingdom. It's very widespread. It's not particularly common in any one species, but chimpanzees and dolphins and vampire bats and all these kind of creatures can, can exchange favors. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. And what essentially that is, is the same favor repeated at a different time. So it's one thing being exchanged on two occasions. Whereas what I'm talking about is two things exchanged at one time. That is to say, I give you money, you give me bread, or something like that. So it's a simultaneous transaction of different things. And the point is that although the first one, although reciprocity is widespread in the animal kingdom, the second one is completely unknown outside our species, with one exception, and that is the exchange of sex for food in a lot of insects and some birds and other animals. But that's not an exchange of two objects. It's an exchange of a service for an object. Now, there are exchanges uh, of different services between different species in symbioses, but the actual swapping of one thing for another is unknown in other species. As Adam Smith put it, nobody ever saw a dog make fair exchange of a bone with another dog. And it's rather an intriguing idea. Why, why did we, it's such an obvious and useful thing to do, why did we alone stumble on this and, and how come it came about? Because, of course, the advantage of doing this is that you can tap into comparative advantage. That is to say, if I'm better at doing one thing and you're better at doing another, we can both be better off by, by swapping. Um, the law of comparative advantage, coined by David Ricardo, the stockbroker and economist in 1817, uh, is actually has been described as the only proposition in the whole of the social sciences that is both true and surprising, um, which is unfair, I'm sure. But uh, uh, anyway, and of course, and here's Ricardo's insight uh, told in Stone Age terms. Um, a chap called Adam, uh, there's two people called Adam and Oz, 
Uh, and they both need a spear and an axe to go out hunting with. Um, and Adam takes three hours to make an axe and four hours to make a spear. So he's better at making axes than he is at making spears. Oz, on the other hand, takes one hour to make a spear and two hours to make an axe. So he's better than Adam at both of them. So why should Oz need Adam? He doesn't need him, does he? He just ignores him, makes it, works for three hours, and he's got everything he needs. But of course, it's Ricardo's insight that if Oz makes two spears and Adam makes two axes, and then they swap, they've both got what they want, and they've both worked for one less hour. Because Oz only had to work for two hours, and Adam only had to work for six hours. So the point is that even if you're better than your trading neighbor at making everything, it still pays you to import some things from your trading neighbor. Here's David Ricardo's um, wording of it. England may be so circumstanced that to produce the cloth may require the labor of 100 men for one year, and if she attempted to make wine, it might require the labor of 120 men for the same time. To produce the wine in Portugal might require only 80 men, and to produce the cloth, only 90 men. It would therefore be advantageous for her to export wine in exchange for cloth, and this exchange might even take place notwithstanding that the commodity imported by Portugal could be produced with less labor than in England. And this is, of course, the classic statement for why free trade works, even if one country is better at making everything than another. And it leads to the division of labor. This leads to specialization. And Charles Darwin was quite explicit. He was heavily influenced, remember, by the political economists like Ricardo and, and uh, Malthus and, and Smith, that primeval man practiced a division of labor. Each man did not manufacture his own tools or rude pottery, but certain individuals appear to have devoted themselves to such work, no doubt receiving in exchange the produce of the chase. So when did this specialization start? Because other animals don't do it. Well, that's not quite true. Other animals do do it, I hear you say. What about ants and um, uh, um, other social animals like termites and bees and so on? Surely there's a division of labor in, in, in social insects. Yes, there is, but it's confined within the family. An ant colony is a great big family. It only happens within kin groups. It doesn't happen across the whole of ant society or across the whole of uh, mole rat society or anything like that. In other words, another way of putting it is that uh, the insects also have a reproductive division of labor, a division of labor between the queen and the workers. And that's the one division of labor we never have. Human beings never have a reproductive division of labor. Not even in England do we leave breeding to the queen. We do have a sexual division of labor, that is to say between males and females, a, a, a tendency to specialize in different food gathering activities. And this is universal in all known extant hunter-gatherer groups that males and females have different ways of gathering food. It's not always that males hunt and, women's ga and, and females gather. Um, it's sometimes, sometimes there are females who, who also hunt, but they hunt in a different way and they hunt different quarry. And the point is that all across the species, you find this sexual division of labor where men are doing one thing and women the other. So here's the Hadza in Tanzania, men out uh, chasing warthogs, women digging up tubers. And it's a beautiful system. 
because it gives both sides an advantage. Back to Bob, Adam and Oz again. Um, uh, as Joe Henrik said to me uh, once, it's like giving the species two brains because one brain knows where to find roots and the other knows where to catch warthogs. Um, uh, and the, 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 the man now knows that he's got a staple carbohydrate of roots waiting for him when he comes home if he hasn't managed to catch a warthog. And the woman now knows that although she's fried staple food, she's also got a chance of getting some high-quality pro protein from time to time as well. So everybody's better off for this specialization. Now, how old is this? How long ago did this get invented? It's been assumed by anthropologists that it's very old. Most of them have assumed that it goes back to Homo habilis or uh, the invention of central place foraging, Glenn Isaac, people like that. But there's absolutely no evidence for this. And in fact, there's quite a strong argument now put forward by uh, Mary Steiner and Steve Kuhn um, that Neanderthals might not have done this. Um, there's no evidence, for example, in any Neanderthal remains of any of the kind of things that women do in hunter-gatherer societies, grindstones, digging sticks, those sort of things. They didn't, there was no clothing to make. So what were the women doing if the men were out hunting? Twiddling their thumbs? No, the women were probably out hunting too. This was a highly cooperative species. Um, but there is no evidence for this extraordinarily clear sexual division of labor in Neanderthals. And if so, perhaps this was an invention of Africans in the last 300,000 years or thereabouts, which enabled them to get into the habit of tapping into Ricardo's law of comparative advantage and do exchange and specialization on a more and more elaborate scale. We know that by 100,000 years ago, human beings were doing something um, even more impressive, and that was that they were exchanging and specializing between groups, not just within the group and not just within the family, but between groups, because objects are starting to travel really long distances across Africa. Um, uh, and I was talking to Sally McBrearty on the way here today about when this might have started. The best evidence so far comes from these Nasarius shell beads, which are found uh, in uh, Afri uh, uh, Moroccan sites, uh, and they, it looks like the oldest signs of them are about 120,000 years ago. And these are traveling up to 190 kilometers from the coast. So it's possible that somebody walked 200 kilometers, picked up some shells, and walked back again. But it's much more likely that they were being swapped hand to hand by trade. And this means that by this stage, human beings have not only worked out how to swap things with each other, but how to swap things with their enemies, with other tribes, with neighboring bands. And that's quite a hurdle to get over. Um, and Sally makes the argument that, it's, that it looks like this might go back even further. Some of the obsidian sites in East Africa, certainly in Ethiopia, some of the obsidian sites date to 120 or so thousand years before. And the result is that Whereas no Neanderthal tool has ever been found more than an hour's walk from the site of manufacture, for Homo sapiens, right from 100,000 years ago, we're getting tools traveling extremely long distances. And here's an example of stone axes which were quarried at a place called Mount Isa in northern Australia by a tribe called the Kalkadun. Uh, and you can trace Mount Isa's 
um, stone axes all over the Australian continent. That's the area in which they've been found. So here's my sort of suggestion that sometime around 300,000 years ago or so, we started a sexual division of labor in Africa. And then we generalized it and started a specialization and exchange pattern within the band. You do this, I'll do that. I'll get good at this, you get good at that. And then finally, we managed to generalize this to specialization and trade between bands around 100,000 years ago. And that's a suggestion that I hope Sally or others will shoot down later in the, in the meeting. There's a wonderful example, which I'm sure Joe Henrik will talk about later in the meeting, of a, a sort of exception to this which seems to prove the rule, and that's the story of Tasmanians. Tasmania became an island in about 10,000 years ago. It was cut off from the Australian mainland. People had been living on it for 15,000 years at that point. But what happened to the Tasmanians living on that island after they were cut off from the mainland was a progressive simplification of their technology. Um, they, by 3,500 years ago, they had forgotten how to fish. They did not make bone tools. They did not make clothing. Uh, and they had lost the ability to make boats, although they later reinvented a form of boat, which was a brushwood raft on which uh, men sat and women pushed it by swimming through the water. Um, <laughs> um, now, there was nothing wrong with Tasmanian brains. It wasn't that they were getting stupider. But the point is, remember the lesson of the mouse. You need a million people to make a computer mouse. Even to maintain a, 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 a Stone Age toolkit, you need quite a large network. You need a trading network of a large size to, to sustain those skills. And they didn't have it. They were cut off from the Australian mainland. And there's a control for this in the shape of Tierra del Fuego, an island about the same size, just as cold. And the people on, Taz on Tierra del Fuego show no technological regress. They show gradual technological progress during this time. What's the difference? Well, the Magellan Strait is a lot narrower than the Bass Strait, and there was trading contact between the Fuegians and mainland South Americans throughout this time. So, for example, there's one group of people on this planet who are still virtually uncontacted. They're called the North Sentinelese. They live on an island called North Sentinel in the Andaman Islands. And um, uh, three years ago, uh, two um, Indian fishermen who fell asleep in their boat, drunk, uh, drifted on shore and was were murdered. The helicopter that went to try to collect them was driven off with bows and arrows, which is quite an achievement, actually. And, um, uh, and although every now and then people have managed to leave coconuts and, and messages of goodwill for these guys without getting shot in the process, um, it's not easy. And there's been there's literally zero contact with these people in, beyond that. And, um, so, you know, there's maybe a few hundred of them living on this small island. It looks like they've been there since 60,000 years ago. Um, that's certainly true of the other Andaman Island uh, indigenous tribes. Um, and that's too small a population for them to have invented computer mice during that time. And in fact, the whole of the rest of human history is really about playing out this division of labor, extending it more and more and more, so that farming is a division of labor between human beings and other species. Um, uh, Lee Silver made the point to me that if you look at what chickens do in a forest uh, in, in a village in Thailand, 
they spill out into the forest during the day and come back at night. It's as if they're working for the farmer. They're going out and gathering calories from the forest. And he, of course, is providing them with shelter in exchange. It's a classic division of labor. Um, the Industrial Revolution, which comes about because commerce drives up wages, uh, trade, that is, exchange drives up wages relative to the cost of capital and energy. And the result, then, is that uh, there are rewards to innovation in things like steam engines, etc., and you get a more and more elaborate division of labor being created as a result. And that's what we're doing and have been doing for the last 200 years. So here's my argument, that people start exchanging. They begin to specialize. You get a division of labor which rewards innovation, which makes exchange still more worthwhile. Uh, wider and wider exchange networks develop more and more specialized production, more and more diversified consumption, less and less time needed to acquire each good because the efficiency with which the specialist is making the goods gets higher and higher. And that, of course, gives you more time to acquire new goods, um, which accelerates cultural innovation and the result is a computer mouse. Here's just an example from much more recent history of the improvement that uh, uh, innovation brings in terms of the, 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 the use of time that people have. If you try and ask the question, how much do you have to work, how long do you have to work at the average wage to acquire, to, to purchase enough light to read a book for an hour. Um, that's about 1,200 lumen hours um, at the average wage. Back in 1800, you would have had to work for six hours at the average wage to read a book for one hour, um, because that's what candles cost. By 1880, you would only have had to work for 15 minutes um, to afford the kerosene and the lamp uh, to burn it in. Um, by 1950, eight seconds, uh, and today, less than half a second of your time. And I think that means that you've got whole, having, if you can earn your, your food in less time, your shelter in less time, your clothing in less time, your lighting in less time, you've got more time to earn the, um, uh, your entertainment, your um, uh, visits to restaurants and so on. And that's the process that the division of labor plays out. Well, in some ways, I've just been saying things that Adam Smith said 200 years ago. And in fact, Here's another anniversary. This is the 250th anniversary this year of Adam Smith's first and in his lifetime most famous book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, um, published in 1759. But it was in this book, not in The Wealth of Nations, that he first coined the phrase, the invisible hand, where he said that in spite of their national selfishness and rapacity, though they mean only their own conveniency, people are led by an invisible hand to make nearly the same distribution of the necessaries of life which would have been made had the earth been divided into equal portions among all its inhabitants, and thus, without intending it, without knowing it, advance the interests of society. In other words, he's saying that spontaneous order can come about, synthetic creation can come about without being directed. And it's exactly the same metaphor, exactly the same point uh, that Charles Darwin is using uh, 100 years later uh, in saying, thus, from the war of nature, from famine and death, the most exalted object which we are capable of conceiving, namely the production of the higher animals, directly follows. Thank you very much indeed, ladies and gentlemen. The preceding program is copyrighted by Emory University.